I want to welcome you again to Grace Church of the Bay Area. Today is a bit of a special or different Sunday, not just because we're here in a hotel. If you're wondering if you weren't here for our Christmas service last week, uh, we need to meet it here because normally we meet at a high school and they are closed, including their facilities, employees. And so every uh, Christmas service and the following service, we meet at a hotel. Um, this one's pretty nice, though. I think we might stick with this one. No pillars. If you've been with us for a few years, you know, sometimes we have pillars, we have a tiny room, whatever it is. So it's been a blessing. Um, those of you who are members or uh, regular attenders of our church uh, might be excited to know, and we know that this only has a certain uh, place that we know God does what He wants to do. This is not definitive of really anything. Uh, but last Sunday was our largest attendance ever. We had 140 people, um, and that's with two of our, our member families, with two of our largest families were actually out, and so, and a lot of uh, our regular attenders were um, out of town. And so the Lord continues to bring people who are interested in biblical fellowship and hearing God's Word. Uh, and in case you uh, were wondering if that was just because of a lot of Christmas out-of-towners, the week before we had 125. And so the Lord continues to bring people, and we just pray that we will uh, be a blessing to them. He will be a blessing to them through the uh, accurate preaching and living out uh, of God's Word. And so thank you for your faithfulness in sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, and uh, letting people know that we are here. Again, this is not for our own benefit or to glorify ourselves but for God's glory because we know how much junk uh, is out there today and we want people to hear the truth. Well, I mentioned that it's a special Sunday. It's because it's the fifth Sunday of the month. This occurs three or four times a year. It almost always happens in December, so it's kind of a nice uh, end to the year where we uh, take uh, a Sunday off of our regular series. Right now it happens to be First Timothy and you submit some questions, and I answer them. And so we do, a, it's called Fifth Sunday Q&A. I was reminded this morning of, of something that I was thinking about earlier this week. I'd heard something recently, and I'm going to kind of par paraphrase it. I think all of the adults here, no matter how young you are, uh, can remember a time where we would turn on the news and they would give us facts and truth, and our job was to figure out how we felt about it and what we were going to do about it. Today, and it doesn't matter if you're watching CNN or Fox News, they tell you how you're supposed to feel, they tell you what you're supposed to do, and our job is to figure out whether or not it's true. And so even in this changing climate, we are so thankful that we have God's Word. I'm reminded of that this morning because... For whatever question you may have, there is an answer from God from His Word. And He has given us that. It is a gift, His revealed Word. And so let me ask, let me read these questions and then answer them for you. Um, I only got five questions this time, and so I do want to encourage you, you can start writing them now. Almost always right after the Q&A is like, oh, I forgot to submit my question, I'll wait till the next one. Well, just put it in the box or email me. For a multitude of reasons that I won't get into uh, over the years, I have decided not to answer questions that are submitted anonymously. And that's, there's a lot of reasons for that. The majority of that 
of the reasons is actually to protect you. And so I do ask that uh, you put your name on them if you want me to answer them publicly. I never read your name uh, uh, out loud from the pulpit. So let's jump in. Is it biblical to say that one's family is his or her first ministry? I often heard that, I often hear this said to people who are so wrapped up in church responsibilities and ministries and in the process neglect their family. But I'm not quite sure if this is based on Scripture or just the church cliché. This is a very, um, when you look at the American church, this is kind of an old school, if I could put it this way, mentality that it's okay for a pastor, for example, or anyone involved in, in ministry to actually spend no time with their family. They have meetings all night. They don't put them to bed. They don't see them all day. Of course, on Sundays, they're at church, and then all day Sunday, you know, maybe they have people over for dinner, for lunch, and so they're with family, but not really. And they say, that's good because you're committed to ministry. You're, you're committed to the Lord. I have spoken to uh, missionaries who they say, well, their one missionary, he said, my, dad, my father-in-law is like that because he's, it, he's an, uh, a national of another country where they are serving, and he's kind of the head of the ministry. And he said, even though I'm married to his daughter, he thinks I need to be spending less time with her and his grandkids and being, doing more for the church. And so that is still a mentality and a thinking uh, around the world and in some churches in America, and they would defend it with Scripture, with the Bible. So let, let's see what the Bible says about this, because I think there is a tension there. In fact, some people even say, well, I don't want to go to seminary or I don't want to get too involved in the church because I know my family will suffer. Is that necessary? Is that biblical? Now, when it comes to our order of priorities as believers, we understand that there's a clear order of priorities that is laid out in the Scriptures. I won't go through the whole list, but when we're talking about God, then family, it is very clear that God comes first. God comes before everything. On a side note, this is very helpful when you're called to submit to someone. For example, your boss, you don't submit to him when he's telling you to disobey God. Okay, and people say, yeah, but the Bible says I'm supposed to do what my boss says. Well, not if it violates other things that God has said, such as don't go to church or lie to this client or whatever it may be. Okay? But when it comes to family, God first, then family. And we see even within the family, there is a priority. The Scriptures are very clear that your spouse is a priority over your children. Now, whatever it is, we need to understand that this is not a task list, but a priority list. And what I mean is this. You don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I know God is the top of my list, so I'm going to do my quiet times. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to think about Him. That's over. Now it's clock in. It's work time. That's over. Now it's family time. And then it's kind of like you, you pick apart your schedule based on your priorities. That's not what this is about. When we say God is on the top of your priority list, you need to figure out a way to do everything to the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's your commute, whether it's eating or drinking, 
whatever it is. We know that family is one of the best ways to worship God, but that does not mean that worshiping God through biblically serving your family is enough. So you say, well, the Bible says I need to commit to my family, but that doesn't mean you neglect other ministries. The same thing with my example with your boss. You don't disobey God in other areas because you say family first. You don't get to obey some things and, and not others just because you are a new parent or because you have a family or even because you're a pastor or an elder. Now, practically speaking, we understand you often cannot be doing two things at once. For example, you can't be at church while at the same time helping your kids with their homework. So when it comes to the practical outworking of this, what does it mean? When it comes to ministry, family does come before service. I understand, obviously, I'm talking about service of the church outside of family. So when it comes to ministry, family comes before service, but not always. For example, if you say, I really need to spend time with my family, and so for a couple months I'm not going to church, not okay. Or you miss church, or you're like, well, I've been committed to small group, and I just can no longer go because I really want my kids in all these different activities and their practices and games are during this time, you got to be careful with that. Or when you teach your kids it's okay to sin as long as it keeps them happy and safe, not okay. We often buy into the world's view of how we are to hold our family together. There are hundreds of books that you can buy and read written by unbelievers that will tell you how to make sure that your home is a happy home. And everything written in those books is absolutely correct for those who do not know Jesus Christ. And the best they can do is to guarantee that their kids are rich and successful and have their own room and have good grades and know how to play an instrument and are good at sports and they can be happy and fulfilled, but only the Christian can have joy. And joy comes through service and the worship of God, even if that means cutting things out of your family schedule so that you can prioritize church and God and other people. Because when you go down the route of the unbelieving world, you will actually be hurting your family because you are not teaching them to put God first. You can teach them to get good grades for the glory of God. You can get them to strive for the Ivy League and be a CEO for the glory of God. But if that is your main principle and their main goal, look out because the priorities are way out of whack. And you see this. People say, we need to take more vacations. We need to pull away from service and fellowship to focus on their family. Skipping church to have a family outing. 
there is a time and a place for that. What we're talking about, what I'm talking about, is habitually doing this such that church is no longer a priority. We kind of see church as a club now. I don't think ever in the 2000 history of the church has there, has there ever been Christians who are so willing to miss church so frequently for personal reasons, for traveling, for work, for whatever it is, okay? You know, someone has recently told me, he said, I don't, I don't think the world is getting worse. I don't agree with that Christian teaching that the world is getting worse. And he, you know, they, they list things like abortions are down, murders are down. I mean, you look at how murder was allowed even in the Wild West, things like that. So I don't think things are getting worse. Maybe things are getting worse in the church because people are less committed. Like skipping church is not a big deal, right? Maybe what the Lord is talking about is not the world around us. It's the weakening commitment that we as believers have to Him and just being present. And so when it comes to church or comes to family, we need to be careful. But here's the key. It's not wrong to spend time with family, but you should be able to do both. You should be able to serve the Lord and serve other people and have good quality family time. And if you can't, maybe there's a different problem in your life. Maybe you're idolizing your job. Maybe you're idolizing that promotion. Maybe you're idolizing money, whatever it may be. I think there are Christians who idolize their children and don't realize it. Idolatry often goes unnoticed when we do something that is commanded in Scripture like taking care of our children, being a good father or husband. But with the wrong heart attitude and the wrong allotment of resources, time, money, talents, attention, then it is idolatry. And this comes out in different ways. Some will prioritize their children over their spouse, which I mentioned earlier is unbiblical. Others will value their children's worldly success so much that they neglect teaching them to value godliness over grades or will choose to dishonor their own parents for the sake of their own kids. A more subtle danger that I'll mention often in our upcoming parenting class is deciding to live a godly life all of a sudden because you have kids because you want to be a good example to your children rather than for God's glory. That is one of the most subtle dangers of parents that is going to wreck your family and hurt your relationship with God. Do not ever pursue the Lord to be a good example to your kids or even to be a good testimony. Do it for God. Bottom line, there must be a balance in serving others and serving family. Yes, in most cases, family comes first. But that doesn't mean you neglect everything else that the New Testament commands you. The majority of which is about people. The majority of the New Testament is commanding you to focus on people outside of your family. Now, the difficulty of this question and many questions I receive is I don't know where it's coming from. And the reality is if you lean too far toward one end or the other, you can easily hear what you want to hear either to justify continue doing what you're doing or to be overly convicted and then swing to the very other end of the pendulum. There must be 
balance. If you're neglecting your family for ministry as a habit, not just for a season, like helping with a particular Sunday or a weekend conference or something like that, busy season at work, busy season at church, not talking about that. But if that is your habit, if that's just how you live your life, always focusing on ministry over family, then you need to minister to your family. And if you're focusing so much on your family, again, as a habit, not just for a season, the kid is in the hospital, mom just had a baby, whatever it is, then you are not serve, and you are not serving others, then you need to minister to your spiritual family. Balance. When it comes to those who say family first, a good example is what we recently saw in 1 Timothy. Theoretically, theoretically, not always true, nobody is going to serve the church more than an elder of that church. And yet one of the qualifications of an elder is that he must manage his own household or he cannot manage the church of God. So clearly we do see family first there in terms of qualification. If that's not right, then he shouldn't be an elder. And so we can learn a little bit from that. Some people would say then, what about Luke 14, 26? If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So people will bring that up, uh, but they will sometimes just leave out some of the family relationships in there and just bring up others, right? Just leave it at father and mother and ignore wife and children. But you've got to take that in the context of Matthew 10.37 where Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These passages are simply telling the disciples of the cost of discipleship. He obviously is not truly saying we should all hate our family members, and elsewhere he says anger and hate is akin to murder, right? So he's just talking about are you willing, if, the, if your family, for example, as was happening in the early church a lot shortly after Jesus ascended, said you're going to follow that Jesus Christ, then you can no longer live here, and you understand in those times this was a huge deal. You don't say, oh, okay, okay, I'm Sorry, I won't do that. I'll continue worshiping Hermes or Aphrodite or whatever it is. This is the kind, that would be an extreme case of what he's talking about. If push comes to shove, will you choose God over family? That's what those verses are saying. So really, doesn't really have any bearing on, on the question itself. Question number two. Is there biblical evidence or reasoning why honor your father and mother is significant enough to be one of the Ten Commandments? It kind of overlaps with some of what I said in the last question. It really comes down to the importance of family, not according to culture or society, but according to Scripture itself. The importance of family is found throughout the Bible. It is so obvious and such a no-brainer that nowhere in Scripture does it clearly say family is important. It's obvious, and perhaps we've lost that here in the American culture But in biblical times, the family was very, very important, and it reflected God's standard and how God created all things. From the beginning, we see family as very important to God. Adam and Eve were not to just live separately as friends, as roommates, but together as husband and wife. And then they were clearly commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and that is what 
why we are here. This is why we exist. Right? People who don't want kids shy away from that verse, but you exist because of this. Right? So there is a clear understanding that God created man and woman not just to hang out together, but to be a family as husband and wife, and then have a family as children, and of course, over thousands of years, that has continued. And the New Testament clearly has a pattern for how we are to fulfill our roles in our family. It is not neglected. This goes back to the first question. He doesn't just command us the one another's and that, that family members fall into all the general commands of how we are to serve one another. There are specific instructions to how children are to behave towards their parents, what fathers are to do, what mothers are to do, how husbands are to treat their wives, and how wives are to treat their husbands. And think about this, talking about the pattern of family. Noah was the righteous man, and yet who was saved in the ark? Well, he had to be fruitful and multiply, so bring his wife. But no, the kids and the in-laws were there in the ark and saved as well. Family, again, we see God showing us the importance of family. Interwoven throughout the story of man, God has clearly established the family unit as the building block of all society. As evangelical Christians, we understand that today we see how the destruction of that family unit has caused society to crumble morally. People would say, well, no, it's this or it's that. Ultimately, it, it is the attack on the family that has caused our society to be what it is. Everything from feminism to gay marriage, children showing no respect to parental authority to the rise in unwed pregnancies and divorce. All of this attacks the building blocks and structure of society. And by the way, when it says that we are salt and light, we understand that salt is, is a preservative. Right? Before refrigerators and freezers, you had salt. You had salted veg- dried and salted vegetables. You had beef jerky, essentially, that was uh, saved through the winter, and you can eat all year round. You understand that, and the, I think the world doesn't see this, But the reason that our world isn't worse than it is is because we as salt, in part, are preserving society by our commitment to family and our commitment to God's morality and moral values and doing what he created us to do. And so even in that, you understand, by just being a faithful Christian, you are actually preserving the stability of our very world and societies. All this, all of what we're talking about comes down to the authority in terms of the building blocks. All of this comes down to the authority and leadership of who's the head of the building blocks? The parents. The authority of the parents. Listen to these passages in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it will be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. You see obedience there and you see honoring. Obedience is for children. This would be children who still live in the home or to obey their parents. Honoring, 
does not mean you do everything your parents say. You honor them. You hold them high. They are your parents. And honoring has no age limits. You honor your parents whether you live with them or not. And no matter how old you are either, so long as your parents are still alive. Then verse 4 in Ephesians 6 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a separate command to fathers. In other words, honoring father and mother is not contingent upon this verse. What I mean is this. If you were raised by a father that exasperated you, if you were raised by a father who beat you, who hurt you, who was not a Christian, you still honor him. This is just like any role we are given as Christians. If the other person does not fulfill their role, or perhaps is not even a believer, this does not mean you don't fulfill your role and obey the Lord. For example, your boss may treat you harshly, may be financially immoral, but you are still to submit to him. Your wife may refuse to love you or listen to you, but you are still to lead her. If they're not fulfilling their role, it doesn't mean you get to not fulfill your role. And your parents may be unloving and fail to actually parent, but if you are a Christian, you are to honor them. has to be connected to another commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So what does that have to do with honoring parents? Because again, it is about the family. And you shall not commit adultery, and you shall honor your father and your mother. Both focus on protecting the family and the family order as God created it. So there is not just a direct explanation, but throughout the Bible the importance of family and thus honoring father and mother are clearly seen. Question number three. In 1 John chapter 5, 16 through 17, John is talking about a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. What does he mean by this? Why does John say that when a brother commits a sin that does not lead to death, to pray for him, and if they commit a sin that leads to death, not to pray for him? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, and I'm actually going to broaden this passage to give a little bit of context. I'm going to have you look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, and verses 16 and 17 are where the question comes from. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. This is very important because now we're going to be talking about praying for these different sins. And if we know that, we, that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. This would be physical death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. 
there's a few phrases I want you to remember here to help understand this passage. One, call, the call to pray according to His will. Second is, of course, what this question is asking. There's a sin leading to death and one not leading to death. And that very important phrase in the beginning of verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, not just the sin leading to death and not just the sin leading, not leading to death. Now, this passage uh, is considered one of the hardest problem passages in the entire Bible. That's actually the phrase we use, problem passage, because we don't know how to interpret it and to come to a definitive conclusion on some aspects of these passages would be to go beyond Scripture. And so they're a problem because they're hard to understand, but they're also a problem because there very well may be no answer. This is considered one of the hardest in all of Scripture. So thank you for asking. <laughs> Not because there is a sin leading to death, but because we are not told what that sin is. Now, the original recipients of this letter some 2,000 years ago most likely knew what sin John was talking about, so there was no need to bring it up. They already knew. We saw that a lot in 1 Corinthians and a little bit in 1 Timothy. So they knew, which is why it isn't clarified, which thus makes it a problem passage because we don't know what that sin is. Now, even though we don't know the actual sin, and I'm not saying these examples are what John is talking about, we do see some precedent of God taking people's lives because of sin. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, verses 1 through 10. Remember, all of the early church were to sell their possessions and they would all pool it together to help the church. We've talked about this before in a previous series of how it was a very difficult time for believers. They were all poor, many of them poor because they decided to become Christians and were cut off from family and jobs. And Ananias and Sapphira held back. They sold some land, got some money. Their eyes kind of twinkled and said, we're going to hold back that money. And they didn't give it. And so they were confronted and what we see in this passage, and it's very important, is that the sin that they were killed for was not greed, although that was sinful. It was that they were, it wasn't lack of love for the brethren, although that's sinful. The verses clearly say that they lied to God and lied to the Holy Spirit. So God struck them down dead. 1 Corinthians 11.30 Paul says that a number of the Corinthians have actually died physically because they have taken communion in an unworthy manner. Now, we are reminded of a few things in this passage. We are reminded to pray according to the will of God. And this is very important because that tells us why we shouldn't pray for the sin that is unto death because that's not according to the will of God. This is also a very good reminder of the seriousness of sin and how seriously God takes this. This is not Old Testament times. Ananias and Sapphira, First Corinthians, the Corinthians, they were New Testament believers. They were in Christ. Okay, this was not wrath in the sense of they were going to hell. That was taken care of on the cross. This is an extreme form of discipline 
which God lays upon uh, his, those he loves because of their sin. So, he does discipline those he loves, and that discipline may include physical death, keeping in mind that as with all godly discipline for disobedience, the end result is positive. And you can actually argue that discipline for your sin that leads to death, the positive is the greatest one ever because you go straight to heaven. But we are still reminded of the seriousness of sin. Back in the passage, then we are told not to pray for forgiveness for this sin. However, we can pray for repentance. Those two are different. If this person continues in this sin, don't pray for forgiveness because it's sin leading to death. But we can pray for repentance. Now, this is, again, where I will go a little beyond this passage because it's a problem passage and fill in the blanks from other passages we know. So take that with a grain of salt because I could be wrong. But this most likely is not a sin that is just once committed like Ananias and Sapphira. That was a very difficult, different situation. But an ongoing unrepentant sin. And probably one of the sins mentioned in 1 John, which then would be, for example, love of the world, not loving the brethren, or rejecting sound doctrine. And if you know 1 John, those are three major themes, especially love of the world that he repeats over and over again. But look again at verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. We are to avoid all sin and take all sin seriously, pursuing righteousness in every area of our lives. In other words, because of this passage, we are not to live our lives in fear of what is this sin, I don't want to die, only trying to avoid this sin while indulging in all others. That practice, if you're just worried about one sin because you don't want to die and then you just don't care about righteousness, in any other area of your life, that practice may in fact be the sin that leads to eternal death because if you have that mentality, you're probably not a believer. At the same time, we are to enjoy God's forgiveness, we are to enjoy His grace, and we are to live freely in that. So what is the takeaway from this? Just pursue holiness and righteousness and repent quickly, and you will not be killed for your sin. And on a side note, this is not talking about sin that medically leads to death, right? If you committed a sin, you know, let's say you uh, slept with someone before you were married, you got HIV, it turned to AIDS, and you died of it. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about a discipline from God that is not just naturally occurring in biology or in your body. Okay. Question number four. Based on Matthew 12, 31 through 32, Luke 12, 10, and Mark 3, 28, 29, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Can you provide examples? If they've done it in the past, can they be forgiven? Matthew 12, 31 through 32, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Luke 12.10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. By the way, we're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about eternal death. They will not be forgiven and given salvation. Mark 3, 28, 29, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an, and here we know it, an eternal sin. So, this is similar to the last passage, but the last passage is believers. This is saying, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you cannot become a believer. And so, clearly we want to know what this is. The context helps us see what is happening here. We're given a fuller context in Matthew and Mark, not Luke. I want to use the Matthew passage. So if you've turned with me to Matthew chapter 22, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, and I'll start in verse 22 and go through 32. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Something happens that leads Jesus into this teaching. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? This is common. We see this throughout the Gospels. And what happens next, the response of the Pharisees, is also very common. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, that's Satan, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So let's stop there. What he is basically saying is the Pharisees, again, doing everything in their power to deny that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been teaching about and they've been expecting, they say, well, how do we explain that he just cast out demons? Well, he must be doing it with the power of Satan. And so Jesus says, even Satan is not that dumb. Why would Satan cast out his own demons? A kingdom divided against itself will fall, right? Any nation that starts in the midst of a war starts fighting amongst themselves, they're going to lose that war. So he says, even Satan's not that dumb. Why would I do that? Why would he do that, rather? Then he says, in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's saying, I am the Messiah. Verse 29, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, there's the key. He's connecting it to what the Pharisees just said. 
I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy is a conscious rejecting or denouncing of God, and notice that even someone who does that against Jesus Christ, they can still be forgiven and come to a saving knowledge of God as I would venture to guess half of us in this room have experienced, okay? And by our lives, all of us. So, that will be forgiven. That's just ignorance. That's just not knowing. That's just, I don't believe in God. That is total depravity. What is happening here with the Pharisees is that these are experts in the law, which means not only have they been waiting for the Messiah to come, they know all the Old Testament prophecies, so they, above all people, should recognize that what they have just seen is a fulfillment of prophecy, not Satan casting out his own demons. They were expecting specific things to happen, and they knew that Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. The Holy Spirit was telling them, this is the Messiah. Look at the healings. Look at the Old Testament. Look at casting out demons. Look at the Old Testament. Look at all of these fulfillments of prophecies. And what the Pharisees essentially did because of their pride is say, shut up, Holy Spirit. That man is Satan. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that will not be forgiven nor did the Pharisees have any desire to be forgiven. And so, the other questions in this series of questions suddenly don't matter because this was a very specific situation with the Pharisees. If we are going to translate it into someone today, it would be someone who just fully and utterly rejects the Holy Spirit's conviction that wants to lead him to Jesus Christ. Now, we did that temporarily, most of us, and then got saved, but the only equivalent would be someone who continues to do that until he dies. And so that won't be forgiven because he's dead. Okay? So that is what it is. It is a full rejection of Christ and rejection of the gospel for the entirety of their lives. Question number five. What's the difference between the first commandment having no other gods before him and the second you shall not make idols? Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, part of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The first, as we know, is a call to worship God and God alone. In your heart, in your worship, you are to have no other gods aside from the true God. 
Not false gods, not worldly pursuits, not the things in the world, not your children, not a dream, not a goal, not a ministry, not even yourself. The second simply forbids the actual making of statues to worship. The Hebrew word behind the word make means to make or manufacture. And the explanation indicates that if idols are made, they would most likely be made in the likeness of something that God has created, an animal, a person, something found in nature. We see this. People worship statues, statues of other people, um, or we know of some, like a lot of Egyptian gods and goddesses are a combination of existing creatures that God has made, right? Head of a bird, body of a human, all things God has created, uh, even a unicorn, right? It's imaginary, but it's basically a horse with a horn. And there, we have both of those things in creation. No one worships a unicorn, but you understand what I'm saying. So although the focus of the first commandment is on worship, obviously idols would be manufactured for the purpose of worship. This also reminds us that God has no form, nor does he inhabit statues made by man. And so there are people who would even want to worship God and say, well, now this is your God because our God inhabits this thing that I've made, which was kind of what was happening with the golden calf, right? And so they're both about worshiping, but this is just talking about idols. I think it's hard to understand the significance of this in 2024 America because we don't have a lot of idols but go to most other countries, especially in Asia, or if you go to Italy or the Vatican, or those are idols, right? Though they weren't manu he wasn't manufactured by man, the Pope is an idol. All of those icons are idols if they truly believe that by praying to that picture, right? Even the, even the statue of Jesus can be an idol if all of a sudden they're not praying to anyone, even the ones in their home or on their necklace, they're praying to that one because they believe that was a, a drop of blood that came out of the statue's eye or whatever. You've heard all of these things, right? There's a grilled cheese sandwich. Remember this? The grill, was it a grilled cheese sandwich that had the form of Jesus on it, right? Grilled cheeses. Remember this? Like, and then there were like, there were people, you know, come in and people were selling t-shirts on eBay it was nuts, and they would come, and they would, people would want to touch the, 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 the grilled cheese. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? This is what uh, the second uh, commandment is talking about. On a side note, this inevitably has some people thinking about, well, then is it wrong for me to have a cross? Is it wrong for um, us to come three hours early, bolt across to the, the wall of the, the Hilton boardroom and then get sued by Hilton. Um, is that wrong? Most churches have a cross on top behind the pulpit, right? No, because you're not worshiping it. You're not saying, that is my God. It's like a wedding ring. It's just a reminder. You don't say, here's my wife. Got to take care of it. How you doing, honey? Right? You'd be insane. Right? Beyond, you would be beyond biblical counseling at that point. No, I'm just kidding. 
right? You wouldn't do that. It's just a symbol. It's just a reminder. You forget it one day, you, you, you lose it on vacation, doesn't mean, oh, now I'm not married. No, right? The fact that we don't have a cross doesn't mean we don't worship God or Jesus Christ. It's just a symbol. It's a reminder. And so those are fine. And to be thorough, since you understand that as New Testament believers, we are not bound by the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments, people who say that we must obey the Ten Commandments as they are written in Exodus 20, then you have to obey all of the laws, including the sacrifices, including the dietary laws, the purity laws, all of those things, right? You ever had a, an infected wound, right? Did you wash your whole house? Did you have a pastor come and deem it clean? Did you have to live in the backyard for two weeks or whatever it was just because you had some pus come out of a wound? Right? By the way, you should get that looked at. But you understand what I'm saying. So that includes the Ten Commandments. However, nine out of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. So by virtue of that fact, we do obey those. And so to be thorough, these two are commanded in the New Testament. Jesus quotes the first commandment in his temptation by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ. Although not as explicit, the greatest commandment leaves no room for any other gods. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Regarding idols, 1 John 5.21, little children, guard yourself from idols. Romans 1 says that the reason the world is condemned is in part because of their idols. Galatians 5.19, idolatry is listed among the works of the flesh. And then 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. All right. So great questions. Keep them coming. Again, don't wait until a week before uh, the Q&A. If you have a question now, uh, go ahead and, and submit it. And, uh, you know, and again, I'm always, I, I respond to my emails and texts fairly quickly. I'm, you don't need to say, I don't want to bother him. Um, and just wait till the next Q&A. Uh, feel free. Let's have a coffee. Shoot me an email, whatever it is. Be happy to answer your questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you that your word is clear. There are no mistakes. There are no errors. There are no contradictions. I pray that we would take these things not just to fill a need for an intellectual knowledge, but that we would take that knowledge and that theology and apply it to our lives to further worship you. Continue to help us to study and read your word and have questions about it because we love you and want to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand as we close?